So we are back this morning in Second Peter as we're working our way through the letters that Peter has written that God, through His Spirit, gave to the church through His Apostle. And so here we are now in Second Peter chapter 2, the very heart of this short letter where Peter is really getting at the issue that has been troubling his soul as he pours out to the church words of warning. So let us now listen to God's voice through Second Peter chapter 2, verses 1 through 10. But false prophets also arose among the people, just as there will be false teachers among you, who will secretly bring in destructive heresies, even denying the Master who brought them, bringing upon themselves swift destruction. And many will follow their sensuality, and because of them, the way of truth will be blasphemed. And in their greed, they will exploit you with false words. Their condemnation from long ago is not idle, And the destruction is not asleep. For if God did not spare the angels when they sinned, but cast them into hell and committed them to chains of gloomy darkness to be kept until the judgment, if he did not spare the ancient world, but preserved Noah, a herald of righteousness with seven others, when he brought a flood upon the world of the ungodly, if by turning the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah to ash, he condemned them to extinction, making them an example of what is going to happen to the ungodly. And if he rescued righteous Lot, greatly distressed by the sensual conduct of the wicked. For as that righteous man lived among them day after day, he was tormenting his righteous soul over their lawless deeds that he saw and heard. Then the Lord knows how to rescue the godly from trials and to keep the unrighteous under punishment until the day of judgment, and especially those who indulge in the lust of defiling passion and despise authority. This is God's holy word. Thanks be to God. Let us pray. Lord, we thank you for your word once again. And even as we read these words that may be troubling, may you use them to stir our hearts to look evermore to Jesus Christ our Lord and to rest upon Him and not upon the words of men and the wisdom of this world, but upon Your great and unchanging wisdom. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Warnings we know are everywhere in this life. Uh, We see them as we drive down the road, or at least hopefully we see them. Um, sometimes we miss them, like myself, but we see roads that tell us to go a safe speed or upcoming construction zones or red lights at intersections. We, we see labels on the medications we take telling us how we need to take them. We see warnings on common household products that we use and appliances that we use every day. Um, Parents with small kids, which there are many of you in our congregation, you are well acquainted with warnings because you hand them out all day to your children, right? Don't touch the stove. It's hot. Don't climb the stairs. Don't climb up the dresser. No, do not jump off of that. 
Now, a lot of times those warnings go unheeded. I understand. I've been there. Our cars give us warning lights when the oil needs to be changed, uh, which we probably shouldn't ignore, um, or when the tire pressure is low. Our computers warn us when there are viruses or malware on them. Even our watches um, now, if you have a smartwatch, tell you, hey, you need to get up and walk more as a warning. Warnings are indeed everywhere. Well, Peter is giving us a warning in this text this morning. He wants to warn his readers of these grave dangers that can erode their faith and ultimately lead them away from Jesus Christ and into the judgment of a holy God. His words here, if we are honest, leave us as His church feeling somewhat vulnerable and exposed. It seems like a great danger looms over the church. And nevertheless, these words are necessary and we are wise as God's people to listen. Because the greatest threat to the faithfulness of the church and the faith of individual believers is not found outside of God's covenant people, His visible covenant people, but it is found within. You see, heresy and false teaching are Satan's primary means to wage war against Christ and His kingdom. And if he can confuse the gospel and so blind people from the truth of God's redeeming grace, he can do much harm. And so Peter begins this morning to warn us of the danger of false doctrines, of heresies that deny the truth of God, which he has so carefully revealed to us in his word. And as such, this warning then is a gracious warning. It's meant not to cause us to fear or to be worried or anxious, but to flee to the one thing that we know is sure and certain. Our shelter, that is Jesus Christ. God's gracious deliverance of you rooted in His faithful covenant love to rescue you as a people for His name. And so Peter begins by telling us something about heresy and heretics. Now, heresy in its most basic description is any teaching or doctrine that is simply not true. It is not in accordance with God's Word. Now, throughout church history, the meaning of heresy, it took a more formal and definite definition. Heresy is especially those things that deny the nature of the Godhead, that deny Christ is God, Uh, They deny the person of Jesus and his work. That's heresy. And it's distinguished then from mere error. And, And we understand there are differences even in the levels of error a person may have. And for example, because I am a Reformed and Presbyterian pastor and teaching elder ordained in the PCA, my conviction is that the Bible teaches us that we are to extend the sign of the covenant of baptism to our children. I believe we are commanded to do that. 
that we are expected through Scripture to do that. And I would strongly disagree with my Baptist friends who insist that baptism is only to be extended to those who have made an outward confession of public faith. However, my Baptist friends are still my brothers and sisters in Christ. They do not believe in a heresy. I think what they believe is is an error, but it is not a cause for disfellowship. In fact, we are united in our common cause to build God's kingdom through the preaching of the gospel. I'm thankful for that. I'm thankful for the unity we have in Christ. But if someone says to me that baptism is necessary to be made right with God, that is to be justified, and that without being baptized, there is no forgiveness of sins, I would say, well, that's heresy. That is a serious error. You are missing the gospel, my friend, for we are saved by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. It is a serious error. And if somebody says they believe in God, but they're not sure that Jesus actually is God, and they destroy the Trinity in that way in their mind, well, that is heresy. To say that Jesus is uh, a brand new nature, a new creation of God, a mixture of human and divine instead of 100% man and 100% God without mixture or confusion, that is heresy. To say that Jesus is the highest and best created being and there was a time that Jesus was not That is heresy. In fact, the church ruled that in Nicaea in 325. It goes against the clear teaching of Scripture, both explicit and implicit. And so we distinguish then errors from heresy. We understand there are categories to error in terms of severity. And Peter here helps us to understand more about heresy or false teaching. He shows us four things, four characteristics that highlight what heresy or false teaching is. The first is this, is that heresy is not something new, but it is very old. It's always been a problem for God's people. It's not something that we as the church in the New Testament era have faced uniquely, but it is a very ancient problem that has plagued God's people going back to the beginning of time. Peter says in verse 1, but false prophets also arose among the people. He's talking in the past tense. Then he says, just as there will be false teachers among you. He's, He's talking about their current situation. He's speaking of the ancient people of God of the Old Testament, the the nation of Israel. At the end of Second Peter chapter 1, this was several weeks ago that we looked at this, uh, so you may not remember, but he was talking about prophets of old who revealed his truth to us so that we might know and be sure that Jesus Christ is our Savior and our Redeemer, our Messiah, our only hope to know God and be forgiven of our sin and unrighteousness. But just as God sent prophets to proclaim the coming of Christ and reveal His truth to His people, so too there rose up false prophets amongst the people proclaiming 
great and serious errors, false messages, false hope. So much so that even in God's law to the people of Israel, he laid out uh, specific instructions regarding false prophets. You can read them in Deuteronomy 13. I'll read a little bit of that. Uh, where we read, if a prophet or dreamer of dreams arises among you and gives you a sign or a wonder, and the sign and wonder that he tells you comes to pass, and if he says, let us go after other gods, which you have not known, and let us serve them, you shall not listen to the words of that prophet or that dreamer of dreams. For the Lord your God is testing you to know whether you love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul. And so there were these prophets who would say, hey, I had this dream. And guess what? The dream actually comes to pass. And it seems like, well, hey, maybe I should listen to him. But what does he say? He says, hey, let's go worship these other gods instead. Well, that's contrary to what? It's contrary to the Word of God, the command of God that you shall have no other gods before Me. That you are to worship and love the Lord your God alone. And so you were to identify a false prophet by what they said. You see, words matter. And if what someone teaches within the church is not consistent with the Scriptures, it's safe to say they're probably a false teacher. It's an old problem, not a new one. In fact, it's interesting when you look at the, what the Old Testament says about false prophets, one of the things they always taught the people or would say is, in God's judgment, it's not really coming. You have nothing to worry about. And there is case after case after case where Israel fell into sin and idolatry and followed after other gods. And they would bring to themselves these prophets who would tell them, hey, everything's okay. Carry on as it is. You don't need to follow uh, the commands of the Lord. It's not important. Judgment's not coming. But God indicts them again and again. For example, in Jeremiah 6.14 God has this to say to those false prophets. He says, they have healed the wound of my people lightly, saying, peace, peace, when there is no peace. So heresy is old. It is ancient. It is not new. It's always been a danger to God's people. Secondly, Peter says, heresy comes from within the church. It comes from within. Notice how he says here in verse 1 that these false teachers are among you or will be among you. Now what they teach, what they say, what they try to convince people to believe may be outside philosophies and ideas of the unbelieving world. But the false teachers themselves, they're part of the church. They're part of the visible covenant of God's people. And Peter says that they secretly bring in, they introduce these destructive heresies. The picture is that of, of introducing this false teaching through deceptive means to influence and to gain a following, much like a, the Trojan horse. You've heard that story, how they brought the horse into Troy and it looked like this beautiful, amazing 
uh, presence, but inside were soldiers. And so they bring into the church these beautiful ideas that sound promising, but inside is destruction ready to wage war against the truth of God and bring harm to his people. And so confusion within the church. And so they will appeal to feelings and emotions and and use palatable words that sound encouraging and helpful. And they claim that the church must teach certain things or promote certain causes if they're going to be relevant in this world and in this culture. And they seek to try to remove the offense of the gospel. But the problem is you can't. Jesus said the gospel will give offense to some. To some it will be the stench of death, Paul writes. But to others it is the sweet smell of life. You can't change that. Truth will not be accepted by all. So heresy comes from within the church. And it is an old problem, not a new one. Third, heresy denies the authority of Jesus over his church by denying who he is. So Peter says here that false teachers or heretics deny the master who bought them, bringing swift destruction upon themselves. Now, when he says they deny the master that bought them, he is not talking about redemption. He is not saying that Jesus bought them, purchased them from their sin, that his blood was applied to them so they are pardoned forever from all of their transgressions. That is not what he means here. You see, if God is given you the gift of saving faith. Nothing can take that away from you. He preserves those who are truly His. But a mere profession of faith, we know, it does not mean one actually possesses faith. Anyone can claim to be a disciple of Jesus, but when you look into their lives and deep into their hearts and you find out what they truly believe, And then you look at how they live their lives. They demonstrate and they show they never were truly regenerate citizens of God's kingdom. They had never been granted new life by the grace of God through His Spirit. And they live in such a way that shows that. And the church has always, going back to Israel, has always been a mixture of those who believe God's promises, who rest upon Christ alone and those who do not believe the truth of the gospel. There are tares, as Jesus said, poisonous weeds amongst the wheat. When God saved Israel from the bondage of slavery in Egypt, he in a very visible and physical sense saved everybody. All of Israel was saved out of Egypt. But not all those people proved to be true Israel. Because it didn't take long to show that not all of physical Israel, visible Israel, was part of spiritual Israel. Because they rebelled against the Lord. They followed after idols. And they complained against God. They denied God as their master and they denied his authority over them. Peter probably has in mind here 
the idea of manumission, which was a practice in the ancient Roman and Greek world of slaves. See, the Bible talks much about us being in slavery to sin, right? We are slaves to sin before we are united to Christ through faith. The idea of manumission was a slave or a servant in a household could swear allegiance to some Greek or Roman deity, and now he is a slave of that deity instead of being a slave of this human master. And he could never go back to being a slave of that human master. When we are slaves to sin and we come to Christ, He becomes our Lord. He is our master. We are confessing Him as the one whom we will serve. And it is unthinkable then to go back to what we once served. That's the idea Peter is getting at here. False teachers will deny the authority of Christ over His church and in these destructive heresies that they teach. And at the heart of unbelief is a simple denial that Christ really is King over all things. In this case, as we will see as Peter develops his letter, This denial of Christ included a denial of His return as Lord to be the holy judge over all the earth. False teaching and heresy is often characterized by this denial of God's holiness. In fact, we saw that with the false prophets in ancient Israel. Peace, peace. When there is no peace, denying that God's judgment was a real thing. Which leads to the fourth characteristic of heresy that Peter shows us here. And that is that heresy produces destructive behavior that blasphemes God and the gospel. You see, not only do these false teachers teach dangerous error, which attacks the grace of the gospel, but they live a lifestyle which violates the holy law of God. They advocate for sinful living as if it is a good and right thing to do and completely natural. And they try to manipulate and take advantage of others within the church to bring them into that way of thinking and life. And thus they sin against God by denying His truth and they sin against others by exploiting them for their own self-gain. In fact, Peter calls attention to two particular sinful behaviors associated with false teachers and the heresies they produce. He says in verse 2, he talks about sensuality. And in verse 3, he talks about their greed. And he's going to develop these sinful behaviors later in chapter 2. But for now, let's just take a snapshot of them. Sensuality, we know, speaks of ungodly desires, particularly ungodly sexual desires. And so these false teachers, they practice open immorality. And they justify that through what they taught, their teaching, their destructive heresies. It is through the justification of satisfying the sinful cravings of their heart that they entangle the lives and the minds of many, causing them to follow after these false teachings, and thus abandon the hope of the gospel. You see, there's an inseparable connection between godliness and truth. And if you take away truth, it will lead to ungodliness every time. If you reject the truth of the gospel, you cannot truly live 
for God. We need Christ. So a person may claim to be upright and moral and righteous or to be on the right side of history, but their sinful lifestyle rejects God's holy standard as revealed in nature and His Word. And that lifestyle flows then from their very rejection of the truth that God has shown in His Word. In other words, they're worshiping a God of their own making, not the God of the Bible. And that is ultimately that the issue with all false teaching and heresy. Heresy is ultimately a worship issue. Because how you live your life bef- is a worship issue. It shows who gets your ultimate allegiance, your o- ultimate devotion. You either deny the Master, or you can bow to Him and know His mercy and His goodness. And his love. But pretending to bow to him while you are really bowing to your own sinful desires is not worshiping him. It is not showing him your allegiance. And thus we see whole churches and whole denominations given over to this indulgent, sinful, and selfish desires of the human heart. When social and cultural conscience replaces the truth of Scripture, then ungodly lifestyles will become the norm of the church. And that is exactly what we see happen even today. It's what has happened throughout all of church history. In fact, you go back to the time of the Reformation, and we understand that many of the Reformers were concerned with the truth of Scripture and the truth of justification being in Christ alone. But one of the other things that troubled their souls was the rampant immorality that they saw within the church, even amongst the church leadership, going up to the Pope themselves. I'm not going into details, but you can go look at history, and it's appalling. But we should not be surprised, because those that deny the truth of God will ultimately give in to these destructive behaviors and blaspheme God with their life and His gospel. Heresy is indeed destructive. It not only destroys the message of God's forgiving grace, but it destroys people by trapping them in their own sins. And thus it is Satan's tool to attack God's people. It always has been. Heresy is not old, but it is new. Heresy arises within the church. Heresy denies the authority of Jesus, and it leads to destructive, sinful lives that mock God's goodness and His grace. But God is holy. God will not be mocked. And because He is holy, He cannot overlook the malicious actions of those who look to lead His people astray from the grace of the gospel. And He will pour out His judgment on all who prey upon His people with their destructive teachings. And that's the second thing that Peter shows us here. He shows us that God's past judgments make His future judgments a certain thing. Because heretics have twisted and attacked God's people Stretching back to the beginning of history, the temptation is to think, well, 
they somehow escape His holy justice. But they do not, as Peter shows us. He shows us that God's judgment upon them has come. And it will come. He does not let their sin go. And so he says at the end of verse 3, regarding these false teachers, their condemnation from long ago is not idle and their destruction is not asleep. And so by double affirmation, he's, he's announcing the fate that will fall upon all those who look to exploit God's people and bring destructive errors into the church. And he's saying there's no delay in their judgment. Why? Because you can go back in time and see how I have already been judging them. I, as God, have not been asleep. And what we see then is that God defends His people through His judgment, He is waging war against those who look to destroy us that love Him. He is our defender. And so Peter gives us three examples of judgment here to show the certainty of His holy justice. The first is the judgment of the supernatural world. Verse 4, God did not spare the angels when they sinned, but cast them into hell and committed them to chains of gloomy darkness to be kept until judgment. And so here we see God's certain and consistent judgment falling upon the host of heaven that rebelled against Him. Sometime before sin entered into the world, Satan and an unnumbered host of angels of heaven who were created by God to serve and worship Him rebelled. And for that rebellion, we see in Isaiah 14 and Ezekiel 28, they are cast down. They are bound in chains. They are awaiting the final judgment of God. Of course, they continued to rebel and they continued to try to influence and tempt the world and control the affairs of humanity, dominating over, dominating over the desires of men uh, so they might produce a, a whole race of humanity given over to their sinful passions as we read in Genesis 6. And for that, they continue to be judged, condemned by this sure and holy justice of God, guarded unto the final judgment. And the point of all of this is to show that God is sovereign over the supernatural world. He has authority over Satan and all his hosts. Indeed, Satan at this moment is restrained. His power is bound. You say, well, how do you know that? Because there's a lot of evil in this world. Because there's not just evil in this world. The gospel continues to go forth and be proclaimed. And the kingdom of Christ continues to grow. On this day, this Lord's Day, there are more Christians now worshiping the Lord in China and Africa and other parts of the East than there are in the United States. You wouldn't say that many years ago, but it is true today. Why? Because Satan is restrained and the gospel is going forth. Satan has been judged. His head is already crushed by the foot of our risen Savior. And so Jesus said, not even hell's gates can withstand His church. 
The second judgment that Peter reminds us of is that of the ancient world, the world of Noah and his generation. We read of that in verse 5. He did not spare the ancient world, but preserved Noah a herald of righteousness with seven others, which he brought when he brought a flood upon the world of the ungodly. And we read of that account in Genesis 6, where we see that the, the wickedness of humanity had grown to a point that God was left with no choice but to demonstrate His holiness through His just judgment. In Genesis 6, 5, we read, The Lord saw the wickedness of man was great in the earth, then that every intention of their heart, uh, thoughts of their heart was only evil continually. But God is long-suffering. He didn't immediately send the flood upon the world. He used Noah, as Peter calls him here, to be a herald of righteousness. Not Noah's righteousness, but God's proclaiming God's truth in order to call people back to repentance, to run to the mercy and forgiveness of God, and thus escape the flood of His judgment. But the world would not heed that call, and the judgment came. And God did not hold back His holy wrath, but He let it rain down upon the entire world which had grown so corrupt. And the point of that, mentioning this in Noah's generation, is again to show God's certain judgment. Because many in Noah's day had grown apathetic to the holiness and righteousness of God. His judgment will not come. He does not act, but then He did. The certain judgment came. The third historical judgment that Peter makes mention of is Sodom and Gomorrah. And of course, Sodom and Gomorrah are synonymous with God's judgments and also with gross immorality and abuse. We see in verse 6 that God turned Sodom and Gomorrah, as Peter says, to ash, wiping them from the face of the earth, causing them to be extinct so that they do not exist even to this day. And Peter says that God did this to them as an example of what happens to the ungodly. The ungodly are those who continually refuse to submit to His authority and bow to Him and follow His ways and rest upon His grace. And that example of Sodom and Gomorrah is felt even to this day. Perhaps you have seen and recent archaeological research, you can read about this in Smithsonian Magazine if you're interested. Um, recent research in that region of Sodom and Gomorrah has uncovered evidence of what the researchers call, get this, a sudden high temperature airburst that was caused by an explosion from a rock from space. Sounds so similar to what we read in Genesis of fire and brimstone. They say that blast was a thousand times more powerful than the atomic bomb dropped on Hiroshima. An example indeed. An example of that God is holy. That He will not let sin go on forever because He is holy and He must bring judgment. It's interesting to note with these three historical examples that in the first example, the sin that is being highlighted is the arrogance of the rebellious angelic host. And in the second example, uh, the judgment came upon those who were apathetic 
Not believing that God actually cared about what they did and how they lived. And the third judgment was upon immorality. And it is of no coincidence that the effect of these false teachers' destructive heresies upon the church is seen, seen in each of those three transgressions. And so God did not spare the angels of heaven, the ancient world, and the immoral cities of Sodom and Gomorrah. And if He would not spare them, then He will not spare false prophets who look to undermine the truth of the Gospel today. Who look to mock His holiness and grace and fracture and divide the church and wound and damage so many people. Now hearing about all of God's judgment, that makes many today uncomfortable. Because they would rather hear about a loving God, a God of mercy, not of holiness and judgment. But, Here's the thing. God cannot show mercy and love if He is not also holy and just. God is merciful indeed to all who will turn to Him in faith by resting and receiving Jesus Christ and turning to Him in repentance, turning away from their own sinful endeavors and looking to Jesus. But for those who will follow after the passions of their own hearts and and exploit others, as Peter describes here, and bring harm upon them through dangerous ideas, destructive teachings, well, that cannot be ignored by a holy God. He must bring judgment upon it as He has, continues to do, and will do. It cannot be ignored by God because He is holy. And it cannot be ignored by God because He doesn't ignore the cry of His people, of those who know Him, who are being hurt and damaged by these false teachers. He hears them and He sees them and He will defend them. Which is the last thing we finally see here is that God always rescues His people from the destructive designs of those who seek to harm them and divide them and destroy them. Peter's examples of judgment form a very long conditional sentence. Notice he says, for if, for if, or you could translate that actually for since or since uh, because it is a, a condition that is assumed to be true. So for if, God did not spare the angels when they sinned. And if He did not spare the ancient world, and if He turned Sodom and Gomorrah into ash, then what? Then verse 9, then the Lord knows how to do what? How to rescue. How to save. How to deliver the godly from their trials. From all these who are seeking to destroy them, the Lord knows how to rescue them from their trials and keep the unrighteous under punishment until the day of judgment, especially those who indulge in the lust of defiling passion and despise authority. The Lord knows how to rescue the godly from trials. He knows how to protect you whom He loves and whom He saves. He knows how to protect those upon whom He pours out His abundant grace. And so if you are His child through faith in Jesus, 
then you have nothing to fear of His judgment or of these false teachers that continually attack the church because their judgment is certain. In fact, their judgment is designed to deliver you, to rescue you from their hands, from the hands of those who seek to harm you. God judged the angels and bound them, limiting their power so that the power of His gospel could be proclaimed throughout the whole earth. And God spared Noah and his family by His grace, preserving them in this ark of safety, bearing them above the waters of judgment. And God even rescued Lot. And if you know anything about Lot, you probably say, why? Well, we're told here, Lot, Abraham's nephew, was righteous not because of anything he had done. In fact, you look at his life and you say, boy, Lot made a lot of mistakes. He actually lived in Sodom and Gomorrah. He chose that. But as Peter says, the life there grieved his soul. You see, he was part of God's covenant people. And so God rescued him from the lawlessness and immorality of those cities that tormented him. Despite Lot's sinful failings of his own, God showed him mercy and saved him from the fiery judgment. Why? Because God rescues those who are His. Just as God's judgment is certain, so is His saving power and redeeming grace. And He will pardon all who turn to Him and look to Him to escape His holy judgment. He will defend all those who have turned to Him from these destructive ideas and teachings and lifestyles of those that want to harm God's church. God knows how to rescue His people. And so perhaps if you feel yourself even fearful of what is happening in the church and you you hear these things that are being taught and you see masses of people following and you wonder what is happening. Do not despair because the kingdom of God continues to grow. He will defend His church. His judgment is certain and His mercy is certain. Or perhaps you yourself at times have felt enticed by the words of those who proclaim error. You feel your own heart pulled and tugged by those who strive for cultural relevance by burying the hard truths of God's Word. If that is the case, Peter's warning to you is one of running. Running away from that. Running away from the certain judgments. And instead, running to the open arms of Christ, your Lord, who loves you and will not let you go. You see, God rescued Noah by shutting him and his family into an ark, but you have a better ark named Jesus Christ. And God sent angels to rescue Lot from Sodom and Gomorrah, but He sent His own Son, Jesus, to rescue you from the sin and lawlessness of this world, including your own. And God spared the world from the rebellion of Satan and his hosts by limiting their power and crushing Satan's head at the cross 
so that the grace of God might spread to every corner of this world. Certain judgments and certain mercy. That's the warning of Second Peter 2. And it is a gracious warning. A warning to rest in the gospel of Jesus Christ instead of following the corrupt passions of human hearts, including your own. For the God who brings certain judgment upon the wicked knows how to extend certain mercy to those who are His. Let us pray. Father in heaven, we do thank You for Your Word, even for these hard passages where we see the truth of Your holiness and Your justice and Your judgments. Father, even as we see these things, may we find hope because it means that You are defending us who You have made Your own, who You have called into Your family by Your mercy and grace. So, Father, protect us as a church. Keep us faithful to the truth of the Gospel. May we never wave from it until that day when we see our Lord coming in clouds of glory as judge over all the earth. And we will rejoice for it means that our salvation is now complete. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.